I'll invite you to turn your Bibles this morning to Ephesians chapter 2. We started uh, several weeks ago going through the book of Ephesians, and uh, we've made our way into chapter 2, the beginning of chapter 2. We'll repeat some things that we've said before for those of you that, uh, that weren't with us, and even to remind those of you that were with us about the, uh, the book of Ephesians. If you read Ephesians and Colossians side by side, they're parallel books or letters. The, um, uh, the Colossian letter is identified specifically as um, Paul having come into information about a heresy or a doctrine that had entered into the church and the, the, uh, being taught to the people there by folks who didn't know any better, I guess. Um, and, and Paul addresses the error and, and corrects the error. But even though he talks about some of the same themes and, and carries on some of the same um, topics in Ephesians that he does to the Colossians, the book of Ephesians is not written to one specific church. We talked before about the words in Ephesus to the saints in Ephesus. Those words are not in the, uh, uh, the oldest manuscripts, the oldest texts. So apparently it was a letter that was intended to be passed around from church to church. And as such, Paul doesn't identify a specific problem in any one specific church because that's not the way the letter is written. But rather it's kind of a, a, a big picture overview of the church in the last days. It's the last letter that Paul wrote to the churches. Now he wrote some personal letters to, uh, to Titus and Philemon and uh, to Timothy. Uh, after this one, dated after this one. But this is the last letter that we have record of that he wrote to the church. And it's kind of, uh, it's kind of the summary of everything that he's taught, not doctrinal point by point like he does with the, Gal- with the, uh, the Romans and even the Hebrews. But it's kind of a, uh, well, I don't know any other better way to say it or any other way to say it than, than what I just did. And that is he backs up and looks at the church as a whole. And he identifies, here's what the church should be in the world. So we started in chapter 2, but the, uh, the, the reference uh, break or, or chapter break that it makes between chapter 1 and chapter 2 is in the middle of a thought. So let's back up a little bit and remind you of the prayer that Paul prayed. In uh, verse 16, he said, I cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. The eyes of your understanding, your spirit man, literally, being enlightened or opened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling. Now, we've said this before, but it bears repeating. Paul didn't pray that God would give them something they don't already have. He prays that our eyes would be open to see what we do have that the eyes of our understanding being enlightened or opened, that we may know what is the hope of his calling, number one. Number two, what is the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, what already belongs to us because of Jesus' sacrifice. And then third, verse 19, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us who believe according to the working of his mighty power. And then he's going to describe what that power is. Which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. Far above, not a little bit above, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. And hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church. He's the head of the church and all these things are under the feet of the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Now, chapter two is not a break. He's continuing to talk along the same line, and he says, and you. Now, what does the and you connect to? He's talking about the same power that was displayed in Jesus was displayed in and for you. And you hath he quickened, who are dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we had our conversation in times past in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. Now, these first three verses are important because it tells us that God's power was displayed to us, but here's how God found us. First of all, he found us dead in trespasses and sins. 
These word trespasses and sins are two different words. The word trespass in the Greek is literally the word blunder. It means an unknown sin. Well, what sin do you commit that you don't know about? I don't know about you, but I've always been there. When I sinned, I always know what I'm doing. What does he mean unknown sins? He's talking about sins that you weren't, that you didn't participate in specifically or personally. He's talking about Adam's sin. But then the other word sins are sins that you know that you're doing. Personal sins. So it says first and foremost, our condition when God displayed his power in us and toward us, for us. It says God found us not only dead in Adam's sin, but dead in our own personal sins. See, it's easy to sit back and take a kind of a haughty attitude or a proud look and say, well, Adam messed us up for all of us. Well, bless your darling heart, you and I would have messed it up if we'd been there. And that's the whole point. It's not just Adam's sin. Adam's was the original sin, but we're guilty of the same thing as Adam's original sin if he had never committed it because we've got sins of our own to answer for. That's why no man can stand before the Lord and claim justification. Because we're dead without Jesus. We're dead in Adam's sin and personal sins. And then secondly, here's the second condition that he found us in. Verse 2, wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. In other words, he's saying not only did God find us dead in Adam's sin, dead in our own personal sins, but under the influence of the devil. Under the influence of the devil. You know, it's an, it's an interesting thing. This world that we live in is filled with people who are trying to be true to themselves. You've got a lot of the, the homosexual community coming out and saying, well, it's about time that we were true to ourselves. It's about time that we were uh, the real us. And so many times sinners think they're doing their own thing. In reality, they're just doing the devil's thing. And that's what these verses are telling us. It's telling us that the devil is the influencer over this, over this world that we live in. And anything apart from or separate from Jesus is the devil's influence and really people doing the devil's thing. But oh, in man's wisdom, he stands up and says, no, it's time we came out. As what? Followers of the devil? Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not putting people down, I'm, or at least that's not my intent. I'm not condemning people for, for, for trying to be true to themselves. But without the knowledge of the truth, the reality, that the devil is the one that's controlling the spirit of this world. He's the one that's influencing the operation of this world. Without that knowledge, you can't be doing anything other than the devil's thing. That's why Jesus is so important for us. That's why it's such a necessary thing for us to get the good news of the gospel out. Because the world is going to hell, doing the devil's thing, thinking they're being true to themselves. And they're not. Thirdly, verse 3, it says, Among whom we also had our conversation in times past, in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. The third condition he found us, not only were we trapped in trespasses and sins, Adam's sins, personal sins, under the influence of the devil, but thirdly, we were trapped or held in bondage by what our minds and our bodies wanted to do. By what our minds and our bodies wanted to do. Now, before I get, I want to come back to something in this verse in just a second. But notice it says in verse 4, but God. This is the, the, the condition that God found us in. But God. Now, folks, if, if you're not too religious to write in your Bible, you need to circle those two words. But God. But God. You know, I think in this world that we live in, we, we are guilty of sanitizing things, at least in our own thinking. Spiritual death is considered, well, that's just, that just means people are lost. Well, what does that mean? Think of it like this. You ever seen a dead body? Well, that's the picture of God looking at us. That's how God found us. Now, when I say dead body, you're probably thinking about a body in an open casket. That's not what I mean by dead body. Think of it as a body that's been dead for a couple of weeks. 
You know, after three days, Martha, the brother of the sister of Lazarus, was complaining about Jesus' command to roll the stone away. He's been dead for four days. He stinks by now. Well, dead bodies stink. They decay. Think of a rotting dead corpse. That's a picture of spiritual death. Or as close as one as we're ever going to find. So here's a rotting dead corpse. That's you. That's me. That's how God found us. And not only that, but he found us under the influence of the devil. That rotting dead corpse. Now we have to get into zombie town. That rotting dead corpse being influenced by the devil. Walking around through life influenced by the devil. No possible good could come from anything that we did. And thirdly, we're bound by our own minds, our own desires of the flesh. In other words, it's the, the, the result, the consequence of spiritual death and the influence of the devil that's controlling our own actions. If being controlled by the devil is not enough, we're being controlled by the devil's influence and the devil's curse, the curse of sin, within ourselves. That's the condition that God found us. And notice what it said that God did. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us. He's rich in mercy. Now, this word rich is interesting. It's the Greek word. Uh, uh, it's a Greek word. I almost made a fool of myself, a bigger fool of myself. But it comes from the word that we, uh, the P-L-U-T-O. We know of the word Pluto as a planet. We use the word Pluto as a a plutocrat. It literally means filthy rich. Overwhelmingly, exceedingly rich. A plutocrat is somebody that's rich enough to have influence over everybody else. Or at least others. And that's what this means. It means God was filthy rich in mercy. Filthy rich in mercy. Overabundant. Superlative. Rich in mercy. Now, what is mercy? Mercy is grace in action. Grace is God's favor toward us. Grace is God's uh, willingness to do good for us. But mercy is grace in action. Think of it like this. Uh, God gives every believer the measure of faith. Faith is the means of receiving God's grace. It's the only method. It's the only way that the Bible says that we receive from God's grace. But unless faith is put in action, it does you no good. Even though God gives you the measure of faith and you have the opportunity to build and develop and strengthen your faith, that can only come from being put in action. In other words, believing is faith in action. Believing is the way that you receive God's grace. Well, God's grace is is great. It's wonderful. It's wonderful that God's willing to do great things for us. He wants to do super abundantly above everything that we could ask or think. But unless he moves toward us in mercy, then that grace can't be realized. It works the same way for us. It's God's grace in action. It's God's goodness in action. It's God's favor in action. It's God's willingness to bless us in action. Now, again, we're the dead corpse. Stumbling around through life, influenced by the devil and bound by our own thoughts and desires. And that's how God found us. But God, who is rich in mercy, wherewith he loved us. Now, I want to back up a little bit to verse 3. Because here it says, um, well, let me read verse 3 again. I want to get to the last couple of words. But among whom we also had our conversation in times past. This is what we were like before we were saved. In the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature, notice this phrase, and were by nature, and were by nature, not by choice, but by nature. In other words, this was because of our spiritual condition. This is because we were spiritually dead. And were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. Now, what does this mean, children of wrath? Does that mean God's mad at you when you're here? On the, God is mad at the unsaved here on the earth? No, it doesn't mean that at all. It means there comes a time where the wrath of God is poured out. And those who are apart from Jesus, those that are spiritually dead, have rejected Jesus as Lord and Savior of their own lives. Then that wrath of God will become due unto them. 
or maybe a better way to say it would be they are due the wrath of God. Now, it's interesting, this, this word wrath is interesting because of the way that the Holy Spirit uses it. For example, um, we think of wrath as just anger, and, and many times this word is translated anger, but the times that it's translated wrath specifically are interesting. Because in Luke chapter 21, for example, I think it's Luke 21, 23, Jesus is talking about the tribulation. And he identifies that period of time as the wrath of God. He talks about when uh, the earth is full of distress and the wrath of God. Paul, in writing to the church, says that the church, and, and the context he's talking about is the, the day of the Lord. He's talking about the, uh, uh, the end times. Paul wrote to the Thessalonians about the end times more than anybody else. He spent three or four months there in Thessalonica and then writes back to them in two different letters and says, remember the things that I taught you. Paul spent a lot of time in those three or four months that he was in Thessalonica talking to them about the end times, talking to them about the rapture, talking to them about Jesus' return, talking to them about some of the very same things he referred to in chapter 1, the redemption of our bodies. So he's not out of context here when he uses the word wrath. Because in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9, I believe it is, Paul said, we, the children of God, are not appointed unto wrath. We're not appointed unto wrath. Now, Paul had to deal with some um, different issues regarding the return of Jesus. But remember, Paul wrote before the revelation was ever given to, uh, to John on the Isle of Patmos. Uh, probably in the neighborhood of uh, 35, 45 years, a span of 35 to 40 years before the revelation ever came to John. And as such, Paul tells us some things by the Holy Ghost about Jesus' return. And one of the things that he seems to indicate to the, the, without coming right out and, uh, and, and spelling it out, which, which I've always wondered about, why didn't Paul spell it out? Why didn't the Holy Ghost know that there'd be controversy in the body of Christ about the rapture? You know, some are saying post-trib, some are saying pre-trib, some are saying that it didn't going to happen at all. Why is it <clears throat> that the Bible is not clear and specific and, uh, and delineate between the different ideas? Now, for the most part, and I, I'll qualify this in just a moment, but for the most part, in Paul's day, the church was accepting of the fact that Jesus was coming back. The church was accepting of the fact that the rapture, the return of Jesus, and the redemption of our bodies was a, a done deal, so at least doctrinally. Now, Paul had to deal with some wrong doctrine, even in his day, because apparently there were some people that came to the church at Thessalonica, and the devil will always do this. The devil will always try to contradict truth with error. But there were those that came to the church at Thessalonica and, um, and started teaching that the day of the Lord had already passed, that the rapture had already occurred and you guys missed it. So what do we do there? I know that in, uh, uh, we've, uh, we usually vacation in Hawaii and uh, on, on uh, Maui there's this guy and he's been there forever. He's been there for as long as we've been going and that's been a long time. There's this guy that's got this van, panel van, and he's got it front to back, top to bottom, marked up with all kinds of scriptures and voices or, you know, the statements and claims and stuff like that. And it's all that the, the day of the rapture has already come. We're living in the tribulation now. Well, looking from the way he lives, he may be right about him. <laughs> I mean, it's, bless this guy's heart, I, you know. <clears throat> I mean, that seems to be his mission in life is to hold a sign saying we're living in the tribulation. Um, and so there, there always have been, and I guess always will be people that, that have differing views. And Paul had to address that in the, uh, uh, in his letter to the Thessalonians. And, but the way he addressed it is, you know very well what I've taught you. He said the day, meaning that day, the day of the Antichrist, the day of the tribulation, can't come until that which is holding him back is gone. Now there's controversy in the body of Christ about what that is that's holding the Antichrist back. Some people will say, well, it's the Holy Ghost. Well, I would ask you this. Since during the tribulation, the Bible says that certain people will get saved, mostly the Jews, but the, there will be a number of people, even a mixed multitude, that get saved during that tribulation period of time. If the Holy Ghost is not here, how do they get saved? I thought the Holy Ghost was the agent whereby salvation came. 
I thought Jesus said no man can come to me except my, my Father, meaning the Holy Spirit, through the Holy Spirit draws him. How's that work? The Holy Spirit can't be gone from the earth. Well, if the Holy Spirit is not what's holding the Antichrist back, then what is it? Folks, it's the Holy Spirit in us. It's the church. That's what's holding the Antichrist back, even though the spirit of Antichrist is working in the earth. But it's the church that's holding it back. So once the church is gone, then the devil has free reign. Now stop and think about that. And again, take a big picture of you. Personally, I think the book of Ephesians should be read twice. It needs to be read the first time from a personal standpoint. You need to have seen, you need to see yourself personally in the condition that Paul describes. Before we uh, found Jesus, accepted Jesus as our Savior, God found us in a dead state, a rotting zombie corpse state. But God was rich in mercy toward us because he loved us. Ordained from the foundation of the world that we would be delivered from that condition. So I think it needs to be read from a personal point of view. But then secondly, I think it needs to be read from a, a, an overall picture point of view, the way that Paul intended to write it for the church. In other words, what I mean by that is there are things that you can step back and study beyond just what God did for you personally. And I think this is one of those things because Paul is talking about the power that's in the church. He prayed that we, their eyes would be open to see and understand, to realize the exceeding greatness of the power of God that works in us as believers. Well, most of the church that, 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 that I see doesn't look too powerful. But, folks, here's the point. As little power as we may see in the church worldwide, the power of God is so exceeding great. And remember I talked to you about in the, the verses that Paul used to describe it. He uses four different Greek words for power, four different kinds of power. That were displayed in the resurrection of Jesus and works in us now as believers. That power is so much greater than anything and everything the devil can do. The church in an ignorant state. In an inert condition. With very little knowledge of our authority with very little activity to exercise that authority is still enough to hold the devil at bay. What could we do if our eyes were opened? You remember the story of Daniel. Daniel saw in the word that it was time for Israel to be delivered from bondage, the bondage of the Babylonians. And so he prayed, started praying, and he didn't give up. He prayed and he fasted for 21 days. Well, finally, the angel shows up. And the angel says, from the first day which you, when you prayed, or first day that you set your heart to seek the Lord about this, I was sent from heaven. Well, now, folks, if heaven is 21 days away, then heaven must be a long, long distance. No, that's not it. Angels can get from heaven to earth instantly. Well, what held him at bay for 21 days? The angel said that it was the, was the devil's forces. This prince of the power of the air, this ruler of the darkness, of spiritual wickedness in high places and so forth, was what this angel had to push through. And it took 21 days because there was only one man, but one man exercising his authority was able to push the devil back, even though his answer was delayed for 21 days. God sent the answer instantly. The devil delayed it for 21 days. If one man can do that, what would the church be able to do if we were operating in our authority and the knowledge of of what we have? Now, folks, that's what God has intended for us. Do you realize what a different world this would be if Paul's prayer in chapter 1 came to reality in the lives of believers worldwide? That's the point Paul's trying to make. Church wasn't operating in its authority in Paul's day any more than it it is in ours. But that doesn't mean the power's not there. That doesn't mean the authority's not available to us. So at one time we were the children of wrath, but God. 
But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, has quickened us together with Christ. Now this refers back to verse 1. Help the translators to be able to translate it. You may notice in verse 1 the words hath he quickened are in italics, which means the translators added those. So when the translators got the original text, they just got, and you who were dead in trespasses and sins. Well, and you what? It, they knew that it referred back to the prayer that Paul prayed in chapter 1, what we know of as chapter 1. But what does the and you refer to? Well, verse 5 tells you. It says, and you were quickened. And you were quickened. You were made alive. Now, Paul departs from, um, from his normal pattern here. In, in other letters. For example, in Romans, he talks about how that we died with Christ and were raised together with him. Paul's not talking about dying with Christ. He's talking about being dead in trespasses and sins. Baptism is a picture of the death of the old man and the resurrection of the new man. Being raised into new life in Christ Jesus. But that's not what Paul's talking about here. Paul's talking about God found us in a dead condition. Now, Jesus' death signified ours. It it counted for ours. But we were dead in trespasses and sins. Now, here's the question. And I, I know people don't stop and think about these things much, but I want you to for a little bit. And that is this. When God saw that man died spiritually, he was watching in the Garden of Eden when Adam sinned. And spiritual death overtook man just like God said that it would. In the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Talking about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Well, he didn't die physically, but he did die. So how did he die? He meaning Adam. How did Adam die that day? He died spiritually. In other words, he became dead in trespasses and sins, just like we were but without Jesus. So God knew and God planned from before the foundations of the world, before Adam and Eve were ever created, before the earth was ever created, before the universe was ever made, however long ago that was. God had planned for a redeemer. Well, he knew that his plan would include the shedding of blood for the remission of sins. He told us that in the Old Testament. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. So somebody had to shed their blood. Well, who else is there besides God and man? That's all that existed. An angel can't do it. An angel is not made in the image of and likeness of God. Only man was. So who's going to die for man? God can't die. How would you kill God if he, if he was able to die? Who can kill God? How can God die? And there's nobody except God and man. So God can't make the sacrifice for man. So what happens? He had to send Jesus to become a man. Folks, that's why. And it's a, it's, it's, with some it seems to be a minor point, but it's a huge issue. Jesus on the earth called himself the son of man over 65 times in the gospels. He called himself the son of God three ti- or five times. Three of those are in the same setting. Jesus did not identify as the son of God. Now, he did identify as God as his father. But he didn't identify as the son of God. He did identify consistently, constantly as the son of man. Why is that important? Because only man can sacrifice himself for another man. Jesus didn't die as God. Jesus died as a man. That's why he had to lay down his life. He died as a man. He sacrificed his blood as the offering, the eternal offering and sacrifice for man because this is the condition, this spiritual death condition, dead in trespasses and sins, walking according to the influence of the devil and the bondage of our mind and our flesh. He's he's telling us, Very specifically, this is what Jesus had to die for. And only a man can die for man. God couldn't do it. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying Jesus wasn't God. He was all God and he was all man. But he did, the Bible says, very specifically, lay aside his heavenly power and glory to become a man. So he gave something up to lower himself to become a man here on the earth. That was God's riches in glory because he loved us. The riches of his mercy because he loved us. Even when we were dead in sins, God has quickened us together with Christ. By grace are you saved.
What did he do? He made us alive in him. Why? Because, because Jesus sacrificed himself, offered himself as a substitute for the trespasses and sins, both Adam's sin and your personal sins. So he quickened us together. He made us alive together with Jesus. Now, stop and think about that for a minute. If God quickened us together with Christ, how are you quickened? Were you quickened physically? Did you experience a physical resurrection or a spiritual rebirth? A spiritual rebirth or a physical rebirth? Not resurrection. But which way were you born again? Which way were you made alive? In spirit or in body? Well, certainly in spirit. Well, then how was Jesus made alive? Had to be in spirit if he's a substitute for us. If we were quickened together, if we were made alive with his rebirth, then he had to be reborn spiritually. That means he had to die spiritually first. Now, again, I know this is a controversial issue with a lot of the church. But it's not possible for it to be any other way. If you experienced a spiritual rebirth, if you were quickened together with Jesus, that means Jesus had to be dead dead spiritually and then be born again. And that's exactly what the Bible says. The Bible says Jesus was the firstborn among many brethren. Firstborn. Well, what? In what way? See, a lot of the church wants to say that just means God raised him from the dead. Well, yeah, but what do you mean by that? They like to say that means God raised him from physical death. Well, if, if so, if Jesus was just raised from the dead physically, then physical resurrection or physical rebirth is the only thing that belongs to you. Your spiritual nature wasn't changed. Because Jesus had to pay the price for you. So if you experienced a spiritual rebirth, then that means Jesus had to be quickened in the same way or made alive in the same way. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? Jesus had to die spiritually. Now, how can God die? There's only one way. First, he has to become a man, and secondly, he has to lay down his life. That's the only possible way, which is exactly what the Bible says about Jesus. So even you were quickened together, even when we were dead in sins, as he quickened us together with Christ by grace you're saved. Verse 6, and has raised us up together. Remember, that's what that power in uh, chapter 1 was, uh, the display of power in chapter 1 was talking about doing. It raised Jesus up. Well, it raised you up at the same time. Now, folks, I want you to understand, this is not saying you had a similar rebirth as Jesus. It says you had the same one. You weren't quickened together in like manner with Jesus. You were quickened together just in the same way. You weren't raised up together kind of like Jesus. You were raised up together exactly like Jesus. And made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's an exact duplicate of what Jesus did. Now, it's easy for us to read chapter 1 where Paul talks about the display of God's power when he wrought in Christ. When he raised him from the dead and set him in his own right hand. It's easy for us to see that with Jesus. But Paul, again, stepping back and taking the big picture view of the church. And that's the theme of the whole letter to the Ephesians is the church. Paul is saying very specifically, just as God made him alive from the dead, spiritual death, he made you alive from spiritual death. Just as God raised Jesus up, God raised you up. Just as God sat Jesus down on his right hand in the heavenly places, that's where you're seated. Now, why doesn't the church exercise authority on the earth? Because we don't know where we're sitting. You go to a ball game, you know where your seats are. You go to the opera, the symphony, you know where your seats are. Matter of fact, you'll pay extra to get good seats. But so much of the church world fails to realize where their seats are. We need to know where we're seated. We need to know where our seats have been located. And we didn't have to buy these. God provided them. You ever had anybody give you good seats in an event? Man, isn't that a great thing? Somebody gave us some good seats to the Angels game earlier in the year. Man, it was wonderful. Sitting right down there on the field. You can't get any better seats than what God gave you. 
you're seated together in heavenly places. Now, where we were seated at the Angels game, we had our own parking spot. We didn't have to deal with the crowds. We had our own entrance into the game. Didn't have to deal with the crowds at all. So much of the hassle of going to sporting events was just completely ignored or bypassed. Well, there's a lot of things that you can bypass spiritually when you realize where your seats are. There's a lot of hassle that the devil will create in your life when you know where you're seated. When you know the authority that comes along with the place that you've been seated with Christ in heavenly places. You realize what it really means for all things to be under your feet. Think of it like this. Heaven is a real place. The throne of God is a real place. His right hand where Jesus is seated is a real place. Jesus is really sitting down at the right hand of God the Father. And that place is far above all of the things on the earth and certainly far above all the things that the devil can do on the earth. So if Jesus is going to do anything from the right hand of the Father, how, how do I say this? How big a problem do you think Jesus sees the stuff that the devil's doing down on the earth? You think Jesus is seated at the right hand of God wringing his hands? said, oh my goodness, the devil's, my, the devil's at work. He's influencing people. They might elect another Democrat. Now, I know a lot of the church is wringing their hands about that. But do you think Jesus is? But you don't understand. It might be a woman. It might be that woman. How big a problem do you think Jesus sees that to be? Now, whatever your answer is to that question... And I'm not going to try to give you the answer, especially since I use politics as the example. But whatever you think the answer to that question is, that's the same way that we should see the problems that the devil is doing around us. We're seated with Christ in heavenly places. You know, when I finally realized that, it changed a lot of my praying. Because before then, it was kind of like the devil's closing in on every, on every hand, on every side. And it's like, oh, dear Jesus, help me, help me, help me, because there's such a problem that I'm in the middle of. But when I realize that positionally I'm seated at the right hand of God the Father, it's kind of like looking back down on things and seeing how small they are. Say, well, we do need to take care of that, Father. But it's not nearly the issue. It's not nearly the problem. It's not nearly the pressure that sometimes we feel ourselves to be under. Why do you think Paul, by the Holy Ghost, told us these things? Because he wanted you to know where you are. He wanted you to know that because of where you are, seated with him in heavenly places, at the right hand of God the Father, side by side with Jesus, not beneath Jesus, but side by side with him, to give us a perspective on the things that we endure here on the earth, the things that we encounter. We need to have a perspective on these things, folks. Because you've got the exceeding greatness of the power of God working in you now. And that power that's resident in the church, even though in most cases with most people it's not being exercised, is enough to hold the devil at bay. And has raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That in the ages to come, everybody say ages. How long is that? Yeah, but how long is that? That in the ages to come. Now, folks, I want you to realize he did not say that in eternity to come. He said ages. Ages delineates uh, or, or defines specific periods. Now, I didn't say time because I don't think we can equate time with eternity. But there are specific periods that Paul is impressed by the Holy Ghost to tell us about. When you get in heaven, there won't be just this never-ending whatever. When you and I get to heaven, Jesus comes back for us, there will be periods that God has a plan for. Now, I don't know what those are, and the Bible doesn't tell us what they are. But the Holy Ghost gives us a hint that there will be purposes, if not times, periods, where God's purpose 
is to do one thing and a purpose for a separate thing in a different period. Now, what does that mean? I have no idea. But notice it says that God has seated us with him, with Jesus in heavenly places, so that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace. Here's the word exceeding again. He used that earlier in the, um, uh, uh, in the chapter or in the, in the first chapter. It means hyper. It means super. It means so far beyond the norm that you can't even compare the two. The exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. Do you know what that means? That means that there are, there is the willingness of God, the favor of God, the goodness of God that's stored up in a vault in heaven. That's so far beyond anything that we've experienced or could experience here on the earth. You can't even describe it. What I want you to understand, folks, is when you get to heaven, you may think you know about the grace of God because you got there. But he hadn't even started showing you. God's goodness and God's grace after we leave this earth is so far beyond. It's immeasurable now. But it's so far beyond what we have here that it's going to take him periods of eternity to show us. You know, when the Bible says that God, it says further in, uh, in the same letter, in chapter 3 and verse 20, God is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. Well, I wish that would dawn on us. We think we tap out God's power when we pray for healing or finances or what it's for God to change some situation in our life. God's so far beyond, so much more able than anything you could ever even dream up for him to do. Think about that for a minute. I don't know about you, but I can dream up pretty impossible things. Think of space travel and time travel and stuff like that that people have thought up for movies and books and, and other stuff. God's bigger than that. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. Remember where we started? We started as those rotting zombies walking around, bound by the influence of the devil in our thinking. And this is what God planned. And God saw us that way all the time. He knew exactly what was going to happen. He knew he'd create man in his image. Man would become the zombie-like creature, spiritually dead individuals, stumbling around through the earth under the devil's influence, under the influence of his enemy. Folks, I want you to understand something. Since Satan is a created being, And God planned for the redemption of mankind before the foundation of the earth. The probability is God knew that he would create an angel that would become his enemy. And the implication is God knew that man would become his slave, his enemy's slave, the devil's slave, before he ever created him. But God is so much greater able to bring him back from that slavery that God said, no problem. And he instituted the plan that he revealed to us. For by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Now this. uh, The Greek language is interesting. In this respect. Because we know of the past tense and present tense. We conjugate verbs. We know past tense and present tense. Well the the Greek has a past and a present tense too. For example. The Galatians 3.13 says. Christ hath redeemed us. uh, From the curse of the law. Well that's past tense. Not just in the English, but in the the Greek aorist tense. That means it's past. It's done. It's once and for all. It's taken care of. Now, the Greek also has a present tense, which means something is, is right now. But the Greek has something that's called the perfect tense that the English doesn't have. It incorporates both past and present. And that's the tense that Paul uses here in verse 8. It says, for by grace are you saved. This is the perfect tense through faith. Let me read this to you from Weiss' translation. For by the grace have you been saved in time past completely through faith with the result that your salvation persists through present time. And this is not from you as a source. It is of, of God it is the gift, not from a source of works in order that no, man would be, no one would be able to boast. 
For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Now, commentators and, and uh, um, scriptural doctrinal experts, so to speak, argue about whether he means faith is a gift or salvation is a gift. Well, I don't know what the argument is. Both are. Salvation certainly is a gift, but the faith you get saved by is a gift that comes from the hearing of the word. It's the way God designed his word. So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. It's a gift that's given to you through hearing. So this is what he's saying. He's saying, for by grace are you saved. Now, remember, this has past and present tense implications because of the context that Paul says this. Because remember, before Jesus, you were the dead zombie, the dead corpse, rotting corpse zombie that God decided he was going to show his love to. And so it took care of both trespasses and sins. It took care of sin's past, meaning Adam's sin, the original sin that brought spiritual death upon mankind, and your personal sins, even to the present. Does that mean God hadn't forgiven the things that you'll do in the future? Well, when you do the things in the future, they become present. And so, of course, they're covered. Doesn't mean you don't have to confess them. Doesn't mean you don't have to repent. But it means salvation is an all-encompassing thing. Not of works, lest any man should boast. Paul makes the statement specifically because he's going to talk about the circumcision later on in the chapter. He's going to talk about the Old Testament blessings of Abraham. He's going to talk about the covenant God made with Abraham. And so he's going to set things up here because the Jews were all about works. The obedience to the law of the Old Covenant, the law of Moses was all about works. So Paul sets himself up and says specifically, it's not of works lest any man should boast. But then in verse 10, he said, for we are his workmanship. Now, the word workmanship literally means masterpiece. We are God's masterpiece. Now, remember, one of the things that the Bible says that Paul prayed for in chapter 1 was that we would know the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. What does that mean? That means that we would know what belongs to us, who we are and what belongs to us, because of what Jesus did for us. If you'd start thinking of yourself as God's masterpiece, you'd live your life differently. So many times we think of ourselves as God's mistake. Or we think of ourselves like, well, I know God loves all of mankind, but that doesn't mean me individually. Well, of course it does. You're his masterpiece. Now, you may not be the masterpiece that I would have drawn or created. And I'm sure that I'm not the one that you would have made. But God saw the unique things in you that I might not appreciate and the unique things in me that you might not appreciate and considered it masterpiece. Because it's what makes us unique. And that's what he's talking about. He says, for we are God's masterpiece. His finest creation. I'm reminded of when the, the angels, when God said, let us make man in our own image. The angel said, what is man that thou art mindful of him? We were here first. We operate as your servants and, and carry out your will. Some of us can even fly. And what is man that thou art mindful of him? And the son of man that thou visitest him. You have made him a little lower than yourself. King James says angels, but it's the word Elohim. It means God himself. You've made him a little lower than yourself and crowned him with loving kindness and tender mercy. You've given your, the authority of your hands, the authority, your authority into his hands. You've made him the ruler of over all the things that you've created. What is this thing called man? Now, folks, whatever was here on the earth before Adam and Eve, and the Bible tells us there was stuff that was here. The Bible tells us that the devil was in charge and that there was trafficking by the beauty of his uh, his countenance and the trafficking of his hands, business of his hands. He was lifted up in pride and so forth. So that means something was here on the earth. Here's a mistake that some people make. They think the earth, to believe the Genesis creation story, is to believe that the earth is 6,000 years old. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 2 of Genesis says, Genesis 1 says, and the earth was, literally became without form and void. Something changed it from the way God created it to make it without form and void. 
There had to be something here. The Bible tells us of a day that the devil ruled on the earth. Because he said, I will ascend up into the heavens. That means he had to be below the heavens. He said, I will exalt my throne into the heavens. That means he had to have a throne and it had to be below heaven. There was something here on the earth. The Bible doesn't tell us that the earth is 6,000 years old. It tells us that man is 6,000 years old. Well, what about the cavemen? I don't know. Maybe that was something that was here before. I don't have the answers. At least not all of them. But there was something that was here. And that something that was here was destroyed by the devil through his rebellion against God. And he took a third of the angels with him. So many times people think that believing the Bible, believing the creation story, and it's, it's, it's one of the things I have to be careful not to throw something at the TV. Because you get these intellectuals that are so smug in their, their questioning of other people. You know, you, you can't really be saying that you believe the creation story. Like, how foolish. We all know that evolution exists. We all know that evolution is the way that man was created. That he appeared out of nothing without any help from any creator. Well, of course. That's what happens all the time. Dust just pops up and becomes a person. <laughs> Folks, Darwin said in the 1800s that in the next hundred years, there would be hundreds of thousands of fossils found that would prove evolution. Well, his time's up. And nothing has disproved the Bible. You know why? Because God made it. For we are his workmanship, masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. Now compare verse 9 and verse 10. Paul says salvation is not of works. Please notice Paul's doctrine. He said, and nobody said it stronger than he did, salvation is not and can ever be associated with works. But now that we're created in Christ Jesus, new creatures in Christ Jesus, God intends for us to commit and live and practice good works. You don't become saved because of good works, but now that you're saved, you should operate in good works. And that's what he's saying. For we are his workmanship, his masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. That's why he created you. He made you the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus so that you could perform righteous acts. Why? Because every father wants his son to be like him. Every father wants his daughters to have his character traits. Just like God. He wants you to be like him. Created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God before hath before ordained that we should walk in them. What does it mean God has before ordained that we should walk in good works? That means when God planned you before the foundations of the world, when he sacrificed Jesus according to his plan, made the plan for redemption before the earth was ever formed, before probably before any created being ever came into existence, certainly way before man ever came into existence. God ordained that you would be made the righteousness of God through the sacrifice of his son, becoming a man himself and offering his precious blood so that you could live as a righteous man on the earth. Now think about what that means in context with what he said. We are the light and the life of God walking among rotting zombies who still haven't found Jesus. And God's plan, ordained before the foundations of the world, the creation of the universe, God's plan was that one by one by one, these rotting zombies would be made new. Joined together as part of his family, seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, with authority to stop the work of the devil in their own lives and in the lives of others. That's what the church is supposed to look like. That's how God sees the church now. Even though we may not be living up to it, that's what God sees in us now. That's how he sees you. He sees you as the light. He sees you as the life, his life. He sees you as his power operating in the earth. Now, you may see the earth as the big snarling dog that's bearing down on you, but God sees you as the living thing among the dead 
designed to show his goodness to others, designed to show his power to break the works of the devil in half. That's who God made the church to be. That's who you are. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for who you've made us in Christ Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that we are your masterpiece. We may not look like it to other people. We may not even look like it to ourselves sometimes. But we are your masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus, made righteous by the blood of Jesus for the express purpose of living your life among the spiritually dead. Thank you, Father, for the authority that we have in the name of Jesus and the power that's in that name to stop any and all work of the enemy. We thank you, Lord, for opening the eyes of our understanding. No wonder Paul prayed that our eyes would be opened. Because if this is the way you see us, we pray today, Father, as we've prayed so many times before, Open our eyes so that we see it for ourselves. Open our eyes to show us who we are in Christ. The exceeding greatness of your riches and glory in us as children of God. And Father, that we would see and know the exceeding greatness of your power that works in us as believers. Power to set the captives free. Power to bring the dead into life. And with heads bowed and eyes closed, nobody looking around. I know most of us are family. But if there's anyone here today that you can't point to a specific moment in your life and say, I know that at that moment I was born again. At that moment I was recreated. At that moment I accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Then we don't want to let you leave here today without having that opportunity. The Bible says it's a very simple thing that if you're willing to believe that God sent Jesus to the earth as your sacrifice. If you're willing to believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins as your substitute. And if you're willing to believe that God raised him from the dead. Then you're halfway there. The only thing left to do is to confess with your mouth Jesus is your Lord and Savior. And the Bible says you will be saved. You will become that new creature in Christ Jesus that we're talking about. If there's anyone here, heads are bowed and eyes are closed. If there's anyone here that would say, Pastor Mike, I can't point to a moment in my life where I know that happened. But I want to do it today before I leave. If that's your desire, I'm going to ask you just to raise your hand right where you are. When you raise your hand, what you're doing is you're saying, I want you to pray for me. I want you to. Show me how to come into the family of God. Show me how to be that new creature in Christ Jesus. Anyone, anywhere will look across the room. Pray for me, Pastor Mike. I want to make Jesus my Lord. Anyone? All right, I trust that means that we're all family. Let's do this then. Say this after me. Let your heart agree with it. Don't say it just because I'm saying it, but let your heart agree with it. Dear Heavenly Father, Thank you for your son, Jesus, and his sacrifice. He paid the price for me. He shed his blood that I might live and not die. I thank you, Father, that I am made righteous in your sight. You've quickened me together with Christ Jesus, and you've seated me with him in heavenly places. Far above all the devil's power. Thank you, Father, for the authority that you've given me in the name of Jesus. That authority and the power behind it is greater than anything the devil can do. It's greater than anything he's doing in my life and everything he's threatened me with. Therefore, In the name of Jesus, I declare that I am free in every way and in every respect. In Jesus' name, I am free from the work of the enemy.
Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Well, let's all stand together. Hallelujah. Oh, that our eyes would be opened to see who we are through the work of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for being with us. Have a great day. Plan to be with us tonight for prayer school at 5 and healing school for 6 if you can.